One of the things I have thought about quite a bit over the last several years is the fact that some of the most monumental events of the Bible are stories that we only tell to little children in Sunday school. Now, we ought to be telling those historical events to children in Sunday school. Don't get me wrong. But if that's the only place we tell the story, then it's easy to give the impression that the account is a fairy tale or is make-believe. For example, many adult Christians do not believe the opening story of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. They do not believe the profound account of God creating and making this universe in six literal days. Many adult Christians do not believe the next event in the Bible, which is recorded in Genesis 3, where we read about Satan tempting Eve and causing the fall of the entire human race. They say it is naive to believe that a snake talked to a woman about a piece of fruit and the result was sin, condemnation, and death for the entire human race. Beloved, hear me when I say that if Genesis 3 is a myth, then John 3 is a farce. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If Genesis 3 isn't true, then we have no reason to believe John 3 is true. Yet there are many adult Christians who believe John 3.16, but who do not take seriously the record found in Genesis 3. The same thing could be said about many of the momentous events recorded throughout Scripture. Think about David and Goliath, Jonah and the huge fish, Daniel and the lion's den. Those are epical events in human history. But it's so easy for us to view them as children's stories, children's fairy tales, or make-believe stories. That is especially the case with the historical record given to us in the book of Genesis about the worldwide flood that killed millions of people and completely reconfigured planet Earth. Many adult Christians do not take God's description seriously. Instead, when we see something about Noah and the ark, we see a picture of a little boat with a giraffe sticking his head out of the window. That kind of perspective does severe injustice to what a horrific event that actually was. To really grasp, grasp what happened, you need to think about a man working for 120 years on a huge barge that could withstand a massive amount of water and upheaval and turmoil. All the time he worked on that gargantuan project, Noah was warning people about a terrifying judgment that was going to come on planet Earth. And it was indeed terrifying. Think about millions. It's not pleasant to think about but if you want an accurate picture, think about millions and millions of people screaming in the midst of an earth-shattering storm, trying to grab hold of anything that could give them stability and save them. Think about people trying to swim up to and find a way inside the only thing that could save them, which was a humongous wooden barge that had been closed up once and for all by God himself. The horror in people's minds is unimaginable. 
The terror in their hearts is indescribable. Yet many of them had 120 years to repent while they watched or heard about Noah methodically preparing the ark according to its exact specifications. Extensive analysis has been done to understand the size and scope of that kind of building project. Consider the following. The dimensions given by God for this ark provided extraordinary stability in the tumultuous floodwaters. The ark was 450 feet long, 75 feet high, and 45 feet wide. A gigantic box of that size would be very stable in water, impossible to capsize. The volume of space in the ark was 1.4 million cubic feet, equal to the capacity of 522 standard railroad boxcars, which could carry 125,000 sheep. The ark had three stories, each 15 feet high. Each deck was equipped with various rooms. There are less than 18,000 species living on earth today. This number may have been doubled to allow for now extinct creatures. With two of each, a total of 72,000 creatures is a reasonable guesstimation for the number that was on the ark. Since the average size of land animals is less than a sheep, perhaps less than 60% of the space was used. The very large animals were surely represented by young there was ample room for almost one million species of insects, as well as food for a year for everyone. The story of Noah and the ark is not a children's fairy tale. It is a historical account of devastating, catastrophic judgment. So when the writers of the New Testament refer back to that event, it's important to understand what was in their minds when they mentioned it. The Apostle Peter is one of the New Testament writers who referenced the worldwide flood. He talks about it in both of his letters, interestingly, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And we're going to see his first mention of it in our text this morning. So please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our series through 1 Peter and conclude the third chapter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Please follow along as I read verses 18 through 22, which we began to consider in the last message. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Peter's main point in this section of his letter is to address suffering 
and to provide encouragement for those who are suffering. As we have seen over the last few months, 1 Peter has a lot to say about suffering. Suffering has been the experience of God's people for centuries. So it is no wonder that there are many passages in the Word of God that address the subject. 1 Peter is just one example. In verses 13 through 17 of this chapter, the section just prior to the one we considered last week and are concluding this week, Peter has been talking about suffering. He has exhorted his readers to make sure to maintain a good conscience and good behavior because any suffering we might experience should not be the result of wrongdoing on our part. If we suffer, it should not be for our wrongs or our sins. It should only be because of our devotion to Christ. Having given that exhortation in verses 13 through 17, Peter points to the example of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. But when Peter mentions the Lord Jesus in verse 18, it prompts him into this fascinating detour that can be very difficult to understand. Remember, his main purpose is to remind us that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately, if we know Christ, if we're in Christ, ultimately we will be victorious. Jesus suffered the just for the unjust, and he was victorious. If we belong to him, if we are in him, we will be victorious. That's Peter's central point. But he brings in a lot of other issues along the way as he makes that point. He stated in verse 18, in one of the most powerful descriptions of the work of our Savior, that Jesus died that he might bring us to God. Peter understood that the purpose of our Lord's death was to bring us to God, to bring us salvation. And that's the key issue he wants to communicate. However, when Peter mentions the Lord's death, and when he mentions our salvation, he does so by communicating those truths in a very unique way. We saw that in the last message as Peter mentioned the death of Christ and then went on to tell about what Jesus did between his death and resurrection after he had ascended to the Father. The Lord Jesus, between his death and resurrection, acting in his spiritual nature, went to the place of confined demons and announced victory over them and judgment on them. Peter tells us that it was the demons who were involved in some heinous activity around the time of the flood. That points us to Genesis 6, where, as we saw last week, there was a group of demons who took on human form and cohabited with women. When Peter mentions the activity of those demons at that time, it prompts his thoughts to say something about God's judgment on humanity in the flood. Notice what he says at the end of verse 20. We'll begin at the, the beginning of it, but the end is our focus now. He says of these, these spirits who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Peter has now transitioned from his discussion of judgment on demonic spirits to a discussion about judgment on people. In the first part of this verse, he was still talking about demonic spirits and their activity just prior to the time of the flood. 
But by the time he gets to the end of this verse, he is talking about eight people who were saved from the cataclysmic judgment of the flood. This verse and the next one demand careful analysis so that we don't misunderstand what Peter is saying, just like we had to pay careful attention to what Peter was saying in verse 19. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, verse 19 is used by some people to teach that Jesus preached to people who were in hell to give them a second chance to believe and be saved. Others take the verse as support for their view that Jesus went to hell for a while as a part of paying for our sins. Neither of those ideas is supported by verse 19, and both are contradicted by other passages in the Word of God. So just as we had to take great care to understand Peter's statement in verse 19, we need to take great care to understand what Peter is saying here in verses 20 and 21. As you might guess, there are those who use verse 21 to teach baptismal regeneration, that is, salvation through baptism, even though Peter makes it clear that he is, he is specifically not teaching that false doctrine. So what is Peter saying in these verses? The first point that Peter makes here in verse 20 as he continues his description, his first point is that God is amazingly long-suffering. God is amazingly patient. God gave the world 120 years to repent before he brought the worldwide flood. That's how long it took Noah to build the ark. In 2 Peter 2.5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, which is another indication that throughout those 120 years, Noah preached righteousness and called people to repentance. That is a long time to give the people of this world to repent. So the first thing Peter says here in verse 20 when he transitions from talking about demons to people is that God is remarkably patient with people. The second thing he says here in verse 20 in relation to people is that only eight people survived that devastating judgment. Only eight people Analysis has been done on the population growth from the time of Adam until the time of Noah. And the studies show that the population on planet Earth may have been close to the same number as today. Now, for the sake of discussion or argument, even if it was only half the number of people on planet Earth today, that would still be millions and millions, billions of people. I emphasize this point, beloved, because it's important that we understand that the judgment of the flood was immense. And it resulted in the death of millions and millions of people. That event was no trivial or insignificant matter in which a few people lost their lives. The only thing that was few about it was the few who survived. Only eight people survived. Eight out of billions. Noah and his wife his three sons, and their wives. That's it. Everybody else on planet Earth, Earth lost their lives in a terrifying experience of judgment. The third thing Peter says here in this verse is that these eight people were saved through water. What does that mean? 
This is where it's so important that we think very clearly. How were they saved through water? The water certainly didn't save them because the water would have killed them. The water was God's judgment. So it might be clearer in your mind if you read this statement, saved in spite of the water. They were saved in spite of the water or saved through the ordeal of the water. They weren't saved by the water. They were saved by the ark. So it's accurate to say they were saved from the water or saved in spite of the water. It's important to emphasize this point because, as I said a moment ago, some people make the major mistake of saying that Peter is teaching baptismal regeneration or baptismal salvation. In other words, they say that Peter is teaching we are saved by water baptism, saved by being dunked in water. That completely twists Peter's analogy, completely twists his illustration. So I'll say it again. Noah and his family weren't saved by the water. They were saved by the ark. The water was the agent of God's judgment, not the means of salvation. Those who went in the water, those who were immersed in the water, were killed by God's judgment. So it's accurate to say they were saved from the water or saved in spite of the water. That's important to keep in mind as we move into the next verse. Verse 21, he says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the second unique component of communication that Peter brings into this passage because here he begins to use an illustration that can be very easily misunderstood. The first unique aspect of this passage was the mention of Jesus making a proclamation to the spirits in prison. And the second unique aspect is the statement about baptism saving us. What does Peter mean? First, let's make sure that we understand what he doesn't mean. And Peter himself wants to make sure of the same thing. The reason I know that is because immediately, immediately after he mentions baptism, he says, not, catch this, not the removal of filth from the flesh, which is what happens if you get dunked into water. It washes you off. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body. Peter adds that statement immediately because he wants to make sure that everyone understands that he is not talking about being immersed into water, granting you salvation. In light of that fact, and in light of the fact that water in the previous verse was the agent of God's judgment, it amazes me that people still try to use this verse to teach that we are saved by water baptism. So let me say it again, even at the risk of being redundant. Noah and his family were not saved by water. They were saved from the water by being in the ark. Furthermore, when Peter mentions baptism here in verse 21, he is quick to state that he is not talking about being immersed into water. Water baptism doesn't save us. Being in Christ saves us. And that is the parallel or the analogy that Peter is using here. Consider the, the picture that he's painting. Noah and his family were in the ark, and that's what saved them. 
In the same way, being in Christ is what saves us. So how do we get into Christ? We get into Christ by baptism. You say, now I'm really confused. We get into Christ by baptism, but please hear this. It's not water baptism that places us into Christ. It is spirit baptism. Immersion in water is the symbol of what the Holy Spirit does for us at the moment we place faith in Jesus Christ. Water baptism does not unite us with Christ. It doesn't place us into Christ. But it does symbolize what the Holy Spirit does for us at the moment of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 clearly says, The baptism that unites us with Christ or places us in Christ is spirit baptism. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12 because it's such a key passage on this topic. Go backwards to the left to the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's after the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. So here Paul is talking about the body of Christ. How do we get into the body of Christ? Verse 13. For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. You see, the word baptized simply means to place into, to immerse, to identify with. So the baptism that unites us with Christ, this verse says, is spirit baptism. A lot of the confusion about the subject of baptism comes as a result of a failure to understand the different uses of the word baptism in the New Testament. For example, back up just two chapters, same letter, but two chapters earlier to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now here Paul is talking about All the Jewish people who were delivered out of Egypt and the great uh, Passover miracle, the Exodus and all of that. So he says, all our fathers were under the cloud. Remember the cloud led them during the day, the fire by night. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's an interesting statement. This is obviously not immersion in water. Because Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, according to Exodus 14.22. Pharaoh and his army were the ones who were plunged into the water as it came crashing down on them in judgment. So again, another example of water being judgment, not salvation. But this verse says it was Israel who was baptized. This was clearly a dry baptism. And so is the baptism in, the, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which we just looked at. The baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ. It is a spiritual baptism, a spiritual placing into. It is what places us into Christ. 
The word baptism communicates the idea of identification or placing into. And if you understand that, it will clear up a lot of confusing passages for you. For example, go back one book to the book of Romans, chapter 6. Back to the left, just prior to 1 Corinthians. Look at Romans chapter 6. Verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... Remember now, how do we get baptized into Christ Jesus? Not with water. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by the Holy Spirit. As many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was also raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Again, this is not a reference to water baptism. It is a reference to spirit baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that work of God which joins us to Christ, places us in Christ, identifies us with Christ, separates us from the old life, and associates us with the new life. So that's what Paul says in the next verse. He says this, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. The issue in these verses here in Romans 6 is what unites us with Christ or what places us into Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 makes it clear that it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that unites us with Christ, not water baptism. One more example. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Go back past 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians to Galatians, the next letter. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. It says, For you are all sons of God, or it could be rendered children of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in that verse that surprises us. That is the clear and repeated testimony of the New Testament. How do, we, how do we become children of God? How are we saved? How are we made right with God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. So how do you become a child of God? Through faith in Christ Jesus. What happens when you place faith in Christ Jesus? Listen to the answer. At that moment, The moment you place faith in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God places you in Christ or unites you with Christ. You are placed into and identified with Christ. And that's why Paul adds the very next verse, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, placed into Christ, have put on Christ. When we exercise faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God baptizes us, places us into Christ. Beloved, there's no water in this verse, in verse 27. No water in this verse at all. This is a reference to spirit baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit joins us to to Christ, places us in the body of Christ. Water baptism symbolizes this transaction by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, Peter understood all of this. Peter had his theology right. He understood all of this, which is why he was so quick to say that the baptism he was talking about was not water baptism. 
was not being dunked in water so that you get your flesh cleansed, your dirt, the dirt removed from your body. Now back to our text in 1 Peter 3. So Peter's analogy is this. The fact that eight people were in the ark and went through the whole judgment and yet were unharmed is analogous to the Christian's experience in salvation by being in Christ the ark of our salvation. Let me say that again. The fact that eight people were in the ark and went through the whole judgment and yet were unharmed is analogous to the Christian's experience in salvation by being in Christ the ark of our salvation. Our immersion into Christ, our being placed into Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an ark of safety from the judgment of God. The believer who is in Christ is thus in the ark of safety that will sail over the waters of judgment into eternal glory. Peter makes it clear that he is not talking about water baptism, but he is talking about the answer of a good conscience toward God. I think the NIV translates this best because the wording is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Water baptism doesn't save us, but what does save us is agreement with God or the pledge to take shelter in the ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ himself by faith in his death and resurrection. That is why Peter mentions the resurrection of Jesus in the very last phrase of this verse. Notice it there in verse 21. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, in my Bible, the little phrase, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, that entire phrase is in parentheses because it is a parenthetical thought. Peter says there is an antitype which now saves us, baptism, spirit baptism, baptism placing us into Christ through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by virtue of his death and resurrection. Peter mentions the death of Jesus back in verse 18 and the resurrection of Jesus here in verse 21 because those are the foundational elements of salvation. Another example of this is in Acts 10. We won't take the time to turn to it, but I'll just mention it. In Acts 10, when Peter preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he spoke of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he closed his message with this statement in Acts 10.43. He says, To him, referring to Jesus, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. That was Peter's message. When he preached the gospel, he preached, You are saved through believing in Jesus Christ, not saved through being dunked in water. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are placed into Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, we are safe and protected from the judgment of God. Just as Noah and his family were safe in the ark, safe from the judgment of God. Now, how do we know that the death of Jesus is enough to protect us from the judgment of God? How did Noah know that that would be enough? Well, he believed what God said. He took God's word for it. 
How do we know that the death of Jesus is enough to protect us from the judgment of God? Because God has said so by exalting Jesus to his own right hand. That's why Peter adds the last verse of this chapter. He says in verse 22 of the Lord Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. By raising Jesus from the dead and exalted him to his own right hand, that was the Father's way of putting his stamp of approval on all that Jesus did. You could almost say it this way. If God had not raised Jesus from the dead, it would have been God's way of saying that payment on the cross wasn't sufficient. That wasn't enough to pay for sins. But by raising Jesus from the dead, it was God's way of saying that was sufficient. That was the Father's way of saying the sacrificial death of Jesus was enough to pay for our sins. God raised Jesus and didn't stop there and exalted him to the place of glory and preeminence. Because this is not part of our culture, we could very easily miss the significance of the statement here from Peter that Jesus is at the right hand of God. The person at the right hand of the king was the king's honored one and the king's equal. That's exactly what Jesus is. He is equal to the Father but lowered himself when he left heaven's glory to come to this earth, which is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the fact that, to use Paul's words from Philippians 2, he humbled himself and became a man. He lowered himself by leaving heaven's glory to come to the earth, to to be a man, to die for us. But after he completed his work, the Father restored him back to his right hand, to make sure that everyone knows Jesus is his honored one and Jesus is his equal. All spirit beings are subject to him, angels and demons. See the phrase here in verse 22, angels and authorities and powers. If you track that phrase, those terms throughout the New Testament, it becomes patently clear that is a reference to spirit beings. And it can refer to holy angels or demons, both of which are spirit beings. Peter has already mentioned back in verse 19 a proclamation of of victory that Jesus made to some demons. Jesus went to the demons in prison and he proclaimed victory over them, proclaimed judgment to them. So he is victorious over demons. And this verse says, as many other verses in the New Testament also say, he is exalted over all angels. That is his lofty position. So that is what Peter is saying to us in this very complicated text composed of verses 18 through 22. That is what he is saying, but let's not forget why. We have to explain all the what just to get to the why, but Peter actually was more concerned about the why than the what. What is Peter's point? Why did he put this this complicated uh, section in his letter. Here's the point. Peter says all of this to remind us that although we may suffer in this life, ultimately we will be victorious. In fact, suffering can be the context for one's greatest triumph. The Lord Jesus is our example. He suffered severely. He suffered unjustly. 
but he was ultimately victorious. Those of us who are in him, the ark of our salvation, will also be victorious ultimately. So here's Peter's point. I could sum it up in two words. Be faithful. Be faithful. You could sum it up in one word. Persevere. Endure. Do what Peter says over in chapter 5 of his letter. Turn over just a couple chapters as we close. Chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, or verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's his application. Verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Peter is saying here, just as he was saying in chapter 3, it will be worth it. Be faithful, persevere, endure. It will be worth it. And that's a guarantee. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement going on around you. As I always do, I want to encourage you just to rethink, consider, contemplate what you have seen this morning in God's Word. Granted, this is a complicated passage of Scripture, but as we work our way through it and and understand it, we, we don't want to get lost and forget the point. The point is, just as Jesus suffered and was raised from the dead, exalted to the Father's right hand, just as he was ultimately triumphant, ultimately victorious, those of us who are in him will be victorious ultimately. So whenever you go through times in life and you wonder, is it worth it? Can I keep going? I feel like giving up. I don't want to fight the fight anymore, the the spiritual battle. Whenever you go through times like that, and all of us go through those times, that's when Peter's point should really resonate with us. It will be worth it. Be faithful. Persevere. Endure. If you are in Christ, you will have ultimate victory. Of course, If you're not in Christ, you won't have ultimate victory. You will face the judgment of God. So if you are here this morning and and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've never humbled yourself as a little child, you've never repented of your sin, you've never turned to Jesus Christ in faith, you will not be victorious. No matter how successful you are in this life, no matter what you accomplish in eternity, you won't be victorious. So I urge you with all that's in me, humble yourself before God. This this very moment, right now, right there in the quietness of your own heart, humble yourself before God. Let go of whatever might be holding your back and receive Jesus Christ by faith. Turn to him. Ask him to come into your life, to forgive you of your sin, to, to take you as his own and begin changing you to be the man or the woman he wants you to be. If you don't know Jesus Christ, surrender your life to him today. And then you will know his victory ultimately. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to wrestle with and
try to digest this very complicated but very important passage of Scripture in your holy word. Thank you for Peter's love for your people and especially his heart for those who are suffering, which prompted him to write so many of the things he said in his letter, this passage being an example. He wanted to encourage your people, especially those who are suffering, to, to be faithful, to persevere, to, en- to endure, reminding us that it will be worth it. No matter what we go through in this life, it will be worth it. So, Father, grant us that grace. When we are discouraged, when we are down, when we feel defeated, when we don't want to press on, when we don't want to continue forward, grant us the grace, the strength. Grant us the memory to remember these words from your word. Grant us the, the insight to, to remember what you have taught us so that we persevere. And in closing, Father, I want to pray for anyone here among us who does not know you as Father, who does not know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely in a crowd this size, there are some who, who are not right with you, who have never surrendered their lives to Christ. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in their lives because we know apart from that, no matter what we say, it will, it will accomplish nothing. So may your Holy Spirit draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to come to faith in Jesus Christ today, to come to know him, to trust him, to yield to him, to surrender to him, to follow him all of their days. Grant that for all of us that we follow faithfully until the day the Lord Jesus takes us home, either through death or through the glorious event of him gathering us in the air to himself. We pray these things in his precious, wonderful, and magnificent name. Amen.